Bismillah, bismillah, walhamdulillah, wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa mawala amma ba'd. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuh. How's everybody doing? Alhamdulillah, fantastic. So, today we are doing hadith number 11 of the Arba'een, the 40 hadith of An-Nabawi, in which we find an Abi Muhammadin al-Hasan ibn Ali ibn Abi Talib, sibti rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, وريحانته رضي الله عنهما قال حفظت من رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم دع ما يريبك إلى ما لا يريبك. So this hadith is from Abu Muhammad Al Hasan Al Hasan ibn Ali ibn Abi Talib. So Ali ibn Abi Talib, we know the famous uh, fourth Khalifa, uh, uh, the nephew of the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم, and the um, uh, son-in-law as well, and married to Fatima رضي الله عنها. And she, they had the two famous grandchildren of the Prophet ﷺ, Hassan and Hussein, Al Hassan and Al Hussein. And so this is a narration from Al Hassan, whose who's, uh, his kunya is Abu Muhammad, and he is the Sibti. Sibd means grandson. Sibti Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam wa Rayhanatihi. Rayhana means a, technically it means like a fragrant a fragrant flower, like a beautiful fragrant flower. But I mean it's used to say like the beloved, the Habib, the somebody who is very beloved to the Prophet. The Prophet loved him very much. And he he says, Hafiltu min Rasulullah. I memorize this. I remember this. And this is interesting because obviously he was very young uh, during the life of the Prophet. The Prophet passed away and he was still quite young. In fact he was born uh, on the third of of Hijrah. And so anyway, he says, I memorized, he says, you know, maybe I was young and maybe I, you know, uh, when I was growing up, I didn't understand the, maybe the, the, the significance uh, of being around the Prophet. So obviously he did understand as he was getting older, but subhanAllah, you know, when you reach maturity, that's when you can truly appreciate. But he's like, I still remember, you know, certain narrations. I still remember directly memorizing certain things from him. So he's saying, حَفِظْتُ مِنْ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وسلم. I memorized this from the Prophet which means, uh, 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 leave that which makes you doubt, for that which makes does not make you doubt. For that which does not make you doubt. This is a hadith found in Tirmidhi, in Sunan al-Nasai. It's considered Hassan Sahih or Sahih. So it's an authentic hadith. And so yes, Hassan al-Hassan, anhu, like we said, he, the son of Ali and Fatima, anhuma, he was born in the third year of, uh, after uh, Hijrah. And his, uh, he was the older brother, and his younger brother was oh, just one year different, just born one year after him, and that was Hussein, Al-Hussein radiallahu um, Now there's a few ahadith about uh, Al-Hassan, which I think are worthy of taking note of. So before we get into the hadith itself, we should just understand who this rawi is, who this narrator is, and how important this person is. <clears throat> so a few things that we should note. Number one, that one time Abu Bakr radiallahu a certain Sahabi was is narrating. So he says, I remember the Prophet was on the mimbar giving a giving a lecture to the people, and he looked at the people, and then he looked at Hassan, and he looked back forth at the at both, and then he said something like, you know, he's he's he wants to mention something about this grandson of his. He says, what? Indeed. This boy of mine, this child of mine, and obviously it doesn't mean, it means grandchild, you know, so, so the Arabs, they would say a child, meaning your child directly, your grandchild, your great-grandchild, that would, those were all considered your children. So, this son of mine, grandson of mine, Sayyidun, is a leader, 
That and it may be that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will rectify with through him will rectify two great parties of believers, two great uh, large groups of Muslims. And through them, through him, Allah Ta'ala will, will bring reconciliation between them. So this is a truly, well, it's a miraculous hadith because this is a very well-known, well-documented historical fact that happened way later. And subhanAllah, it was a prediction that he would do this. And I'll mention what in just a moment. But there's one more hadith that I want to mention before we get into that. Another hadith from the Prophet which is again remarkable. This is in Sunan Abi Dawood. The Prophet says, it's a, it's a, a, sahih, a Hassan Sahih hadith by Al Albani. So the Prophet said that prophetic caliphate will last 30 years. It's very specific. Prophetic caliphate, like caliphate that is on the prophetic, uh, you could say methodology, will last for 30 years. And then Allah will give mulk or dominion or kingdom to uh, uh, whoever he wills, or he will give his kingdom to whoever he wills. So there's, the narration could be this way or that way, but still, the point is still the same. Whether it's his kingdom or kingdom in general, Allah Ta'ala will give it to whoever he wills after that. So the reason I bring this up is because of two reasons. Or these two ahadith, you'll see why. Number one is because we know that after the time of the Prophet then the very first Khalifa after that was who? Abu Bakr al-Anhu. And how long was he a Khalifa for? Two years, that's right, two years. And then after that, you have Umar ibn al-Khattab, and he was the Amir al-Mu'mineen for how long? Ten. Ten years. So you have two plus ten, that makes twelve. Then you have Uthman, who was the Khalifa for how long? Twelve. Twelve years. So two and ten makes twelve, and then another twelve, that makes twenty-four. And then Ali ibn Abi Talib was the Khalifa for how long? Five and a half. And you know how long? And then after Ali ibn Talib was assassinated by the Khawarij, who was the leader of the believers for six months? Al-Hasan was the Khalifa for six months. So you got two plus 10 plus 12, and then 5.5, and then six months. Gets exactly 30 years, five individuals. So we're very used to saying the four uh, rightly guided Khalifas. But really there's a fifth. And the fifth is Al-Hasan. And the Prophet literally said, this, he's a Sayyid. Indeed, this son of mine is a Sayyid. A say, Sayyid. He's, a, he's a leader, so I'm predicting. He's going to be a leader. And he's going to bring peace. Allah, through him, Allah Ta'ala is going to bring peace uh, between two great uh, believing parties. And that's exactly what happened. That he could have been the Khalifa for a much, much longer. And yet, because there was uh, uh, some uh, turmoil in the Muslim Ummah, two factions, those who were saying we need to uh, uh, basically take revenge and kill anybody who was involved in the assassination of Uthman. We need to get rid of them immediately. And the other faction saying, no, that is not the priority right now. We need to focus uh, not on that right, right away. Maybe we'll get to that later. Anyway, this is a long history as to the debate between these two factions. Either way, uh, uh, Al-Hasan, he, he was the Khalifa. He was, he was chosen for the Khilafa for six months. And then he said, I will give it up. I will give it up to Muawiyah. And uh, by the way, the Shia, they believe that, um, you know, they believe the 12 Imams, the 12 Ithna Ashariya, the 12 Imams, uh, 12 uh, Ithna Ashariya is the um, Shia. What they say is that each of these Imams is uh, Ma'asum, is Ma'asum means like infallible. 
and also they believe that imamat, this concept of imamat is, um, is, a part, is a pillar of iman. You know how we say like, amantu billahi wa malaikati wa kutubihi? They say that it's a pillar of iman. And so you can ask them, why is it then that uh, Al-Hasan, uh, why would he give up his khilafah if it is a pillar of iman and he is ma'asum and he cannot make mistakes? So why would he do such a thing? I've never heard a good response to this. And so uh, this uh, seems to be a problem for them. This is one of the reasons, Wallah this seems to be one of the reasons why they focus so much on Al-Husayn and they, they put so much emphasis on him. And when it comes to Al-Hasan, you see they don't put a lot of emphasis there. And you could say it's a bit of a sore issue that you know he gave up uh, the Khilafah, um, which goes against... I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't imagine anybody who's divinely appointed, like a prophet, for example, right? You couldn't imagine a prophet saying something like, okay, you know what? Uh, I'll give up my belief in angels or books like the Qur'an or, you know, the afterlife, you know, Jannah uh, nar you know what? I'll just leave that, I'll, I'll let that go. You can't, you can't let that go. That's your job, right? So if, you, if you're saying that an imam is a divinely appointed position and that they are ma'asum and they can't make mistakes, how could they possibly have given up? So, wallah, this doesn't seem to be something that they can reconcile and Allah knows best. Yes. So, now, it's interesting that there are other hadith that speak specifically about what will take place uh, throughout the Islamic history. And there's a lengthy hadith from uh, Muslim Imam Ahmed in which the Prophet ﷺ says, it's authentic hadith as well, the Prophet ﷺ says, تَكُونُ النُّبُوَةُ فِيكُمْ مَا شَاءَ اللَّهُ أَن تَكُونُ ثُمَّ يَرْفَعُهَا that firstly, there will be Prophet with you for as long as Allah wills. And then He will remove it when He wills. And how long was Prophethood amongst us for? With the Prophet 23 years. Right. Then, ثُمَّ تَكُونُ خِلَافَةً عَلَى مِنْهَاجِ النُّبُوَةِ فَتَكُونُ مَا شَاءَ اللَّهُ أَن تَكُونُ ثُمَّ يَرْفَعُهَا إِذَا شَاءَ أَن يَرْفَعَهَا Then there will be Khilafa, uh, there will be a caliphate on the prophetic methodology. Uh, on the prophetic methodology. And it will be for as long as Allah wills. And then Allah will remove it. And from the other hadith, we know how long is that for? 30 years, right? As the Prophet says. So that, that came true. What's next? What's the next phase? Next phase. ثُمَّ تَكُونُ مُلْكًا عَضًا Then there will be مُلْكًا عَضًا means biting kingdoms. What does it mean, biting? It means long-lasting, long-lasting kingdoms. فَيَكُونُ مَا شَاءَ اللَّهُ أَنْ تَكُونُ ثُمَّ يَرْفَعُهَا إِذَا شَاءَ اللَّهُ أَنْ يَرْفَعَهَا Then there will be these long-lasting biting kingdoms as long as Allah wills, and then He will remove it when He wills. What are these biting long-lasting kingdoms? Umayyad, Abbasid, Mamluk, the Mughal Empire, up until the very last one, which, 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 which was which one? Uthmani, right? The Ottomans. And by the way, when was the Khilafah dismantled by the, uh, uh, by, uh, from, the, from the Ottomans? When was it dismantled? What year? Anybody remember? 1924. 1924. Yeah, 1924. So, what happens after that? We want to know. <laughs> Apparently, we're getting the whole thing. So, subhanAllah, everything's coming true. From 1400 years ago, the Prophet told or you could say military, military states. And by the way, since 1924, roughly 100 years ago, uh, 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 every, you know, the Muslim ummah has basically been from one military dictator to the, to the next, usually some sort of a coup, and then the military dictator takes over, and this has been happening all across the Muslim world again and again and again. So that's the stage that you could say we are in now. So what, are, what stage are we in? ثُمَّ تَكُونُ مُلْكًا جَبْرِيًّا 
uh, uh, and I mean, I could start listing all the different rulers, but I'm pretty sure you all know which rulers I'm talking about. Just think about in any recent history in the past, you know, 50, 60, 70 years, all of these leaders have been uh, uh, military leaders, Mulkan Jabriyan. They've been, uh, yes, uh, you know, taken over their country due to a coup or whatever the case is. Then there will be oppressive kings, or you could say military states, for as long as Allah wills, and then He will remove it when He wills. And like I said, uh, that's, that's been since 1924. By the way, you know there's another hadith that says that there will be a mujaddid, there will be a reviver every hundred years. Right? So yeah, you're, you're, you're aware of this. So anyway, it's just interesting that we're getting really close to the 100 year mark in the next couple of years. Uh, Wallahu ta'ala alam, there's a whole theory about uh, 2022 because it's not exactly years in the, same, in the solar, it's the, it's the lunar, so it's a little bit shorter. So there's a whole theory about 2022, which I've been hearing about. I, the first time I heard about this theory was back in 2005. And I have certain friends that have been talking about it ever since. There's this big theory about what's going to happen in 2022. Uh, and then when I heard, I was on the plane and a certain uh, military man was, I was sitting next to this guy. We had a long conversation for three hours. We were talking, a guy who was... Uh, anyway, he was like, yeah, you just wait till 2022 comes. And that, honestly, I felt like I was going to die. I was like, oh, I can't believe you just, I said, why did you say that? You know? And he was like, well, anyway, he explained this whole thing about what the United States is setting up certain military bases. And he's like, I have a prediction that around that time, something's going to go down. And so anyway, just the moment, the moment he said 2022, I felt like my, my heart sunk so deep into my, into my body. I was like, oh my God, how do you just say that? Because I've just been hearing about it for so many years. Anyway. Keep in mind that this is all, this is, this is somewhat theoretical in the sense that don't, don't put, you know, too much weight on these type of theories. You know, these are not, it's not like there's a clear hadith that says in the year 2022 something, something will happen. These are just theories people have. Anyway, I don't want to get too deep into it. Allah knows best. So we'll see. I mean, it's not like we can do anything about it anyway. If something's going to happen, something's going to happen. We'll see. Um, so then the question is, what happens after this stage that we're in? What's the next stage, Ya Rasulullah? Oh, Messenger of Allah, what's the next stage? The hadith continues and then the hadith Look at this, look at how the hadith continues. Then there will be a khilafah upon the prophetic methodology. And then he was quiet. So subhanAllah, apparently we're in a stage. Now again, I don't know how long this stage will last. It could last for a very long time. Allah knows best. Yes, there are theories. Of course, anybody can theorize anything they want. But at the end of the day, based on this model, like I said, this prophetic then there was ala minhaj nubuwa upon the prophetic model, 30 years. Then long kingdoms. Then those kingdoms finished with then uh, military states, which we are in now. And then after that, it's supposed to go back to a prophetic model. And this is, this is what the hadith says. And subhanAllah, it's just, the timeline is just amazing when you, when you pay attention historically. And so there are theories. Like I said, the fact that we are getting close to that 100-year mark, to me, is pretty incredible. But um, anyway, we'll see what happens. Um, so moving on to the hadith. I haven't even gotten to the hadith yet, sorry. <laughs> Then uh, Al-Hasan, uh, he died at the age of 46, which is quite young. Even though he gave up the uh, Khilafat Muawiyah, he was actually considered a, still a potential political threat, and therefore he was actually poisoned, and he died. And he died at the, at the age of 46 in the year 50 Hijri. And this in and of itself, again, brings a big question towards the Shia, who believe that he was... They believe that all the, all the imams have ilmul ghayb, that they have knowledge of the unseen. And so that, that creates a really big problem for your beliefs. Because if you say that he has ilmul ghayb and he knows everything and he has knowledge of the unseen, then he would know that uh, 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 his food has poison in it. And therefore, if he continued to eat it anyway, that's called what? Suicide. And obviously, you can't attribute suicide to somebody who is infallible. You can't even attribute suicide to somebody who's righteous, subhanAllah, let alone an imam. 
So, uh, so then that poses a, a big issue for their belief system. And again, I've never heard a good answer to why is it that Al-Hasan, who was a uh, Khalifa, why did he give it up? I never heard a good answer to that from the Shia. And why did he eat poison if he is if he know has ilm al-ghayb? I've never heard the Shia answer a good good answer to these key issues. Which again uh, lends me lends more strength to the theory that perhaps, and Allah knows best, perhaps um, uh, this is why they kind of downplay al-Hasan and they focus more on al-Hussein anhu. Okay. So now back to the hadith. So that's, I just want to say all that about the narrator, al-Hasan. All this so far was just about the narrator, about who he is and about. Uh, you know, all these different things attached to him. But as for the hadith itself, beautiful hadith, and by the way, An-Nawi, he only mentioned a portion of the hadith. The, the hadith is actually longer. So the hadith goes as follows. The full version in At-Tirmidhi goes, goes as follows. دَعْمَا يُرِيبُكْ إِلَى مَا لَا يُرِيبُكْ فَإِنَّ الصِّدْقَ تُمَأْنِينَ وَإِنَّ الْكَذِبْ رِيبَةٌ That leave what makes you doubt for that which does not make you doubt. Because what? The truth brings tranquility while falsehood sows doubt. So, you know, it's just continuing with the hadith saying, look, leave that which you doubt for that which does not make you doubt. Why, uh, one of the reasons being because the truth, because I should say, because indeed, fa, because indeed, um, truth brings tranquility while falsehood sows doubt in the heart. So the subject of this hadith seems to be, wallahu ta'ala a'lam, the subject of psychological well-being and inner peace. That seems to be the main focus. The idea of how do we attain psychological well-being and inner peace. And the way we do that is by remaining away and staying away from doubtful matters. Well, what are these doubtful matters that we're talking about? What exactly are we discussing here? Well, what causes doubt? The first answer is sins. Sins cause you doubt. They make you feel guilty. They make you second-guess yourself. They make you feel bad about what you did. They make you ask, why did I do that? I shouldn't have done that. Well, no, and then your ego flares up and says, yes, no, it was good that I did it. No, it was bad. And back forth, back forth. So it gives, it creates this discomfort within, this turmoil, you could say. Now, there are different ty- types of guilt. There's a type of guilt that you recognize immediately with a lot of self-reflection. You did something. You feel the guilt wash over you. It's like this feeling that just pours on you and, you, and you recognize it immediately. And that's actually a good thing because then it tells you something needs to be done. Something needs to be fixed. Either I need to apologize or I need to, you know, something. I need to do something. I need to change my behavior. I, never, I need to never come to a place like this again. I should never step foot to be around these type of people. Whatever it is, I feel guilty. I feel this doubt. I feel this discomfort. And I recognize it. And that's a very healthy mindset. The, the healthy person is the one. It's not the one who never has doubts or who never makes a mistake. We're all human. We're all going to have doubts and we're all going to have guilt. We're all going to make mistakes. But to be a self-aware individual is to be the type of person who recognizes the feelings that are going on within them immediately and then acts accordingly to adjust and to, to fix the situation. So guilt in that, in that sense, which is causing you sort of doubt, is good when you recognize it and when it motivates you to improve. However, there are other forms of guilt, like for example, unrecognized guilt that is subconscious. Subconscious guilt that just lingers. Or another one is the type of guilt that you're constantly wrestling with. You're wrestling with your ego. I feel bad. No, I don't. I was right to do that. I'm glad I insulted him. He deserved it. No, I really shouldn't have done it. No, no, it was a good thing. Back, forth, back, forth. You're just wrestling on the inside, just pulling, pulling, twisting back and forth. And it's causing all sorts of problems. It's, it's, it's draining you. It's taking up your mental space. It's taking up your energy. It is emotionally tiresome. And it is just a, a whole lot of energy for no reason. So these two, these two types of uh, guilt are the ones that we want to try to stay away from. The one where, which is unrecognized or sub, subconscious that is going to 
slowly eat away at you and chip, it, chip away at you, and the other one which you are wrestling with because of your ego. Why are these so dangerous? Because they can manifest in all kinds of harmful ways that you only recognize much later on down the line, maybe when it's too late. Like, for example, being very passive-aggressive in a relationship. You know, you did something, you did something, you feel bad about it, but instead of confronting it, you kind of put it on the back burner. But now it's popping out in your attitude. And you're being rude to this person, you're being snippy with that person, you, you, uh, you know, uh, again, passive-aggressive type of behavior. This is what we want to avoid, this type of... Uh, and so how do we get rid of it? By recognizing what's, cr what's causing it and addressing the issue. And also wrestling with your ego. Sometimes you just got to drop it and say, you know what, forget about my ego. I'll be the first person to go and apologize. I'll be the one to say, you know what, I should have done things better and I was wrong. I messed up. Even if the person appreciates it or doesn't appreciate it, whatever. That's, not, that's their business. That's them, between them and Allah. I need to get my heart straight. This is just rattling in my brain too much and I'm sick of it. So, yes. Yes, guilt is mentally and emotionally draining, which makes you less productive as a Muslim, as a human being. It makes you less productive. There's actually a very interesting proverb. It says, if you live in the past, you'll miss the present, and you'll, you'll never have a future. So that's a pretty good proverb, I believe. It's kind of nice. That, yeah, if you're, constantly, if you're constantly living in the past and mulling over your mistakes, then, yes, it's going to be very draining on you because you'll miss the present moment. You'll, you'll miss all the opportunities you have in front of you, and that you'll never have a future because you won't build. Inshallah, we'll, we'll continue in a second.